You're watching The Sports Objective, the podcast for pirates. You're listening to Absolute Empowerment with Coach Jeff Connors on The Sports Objective. Join Coach C, the USA Strength and Conditioning Hall of Famer, every Monday night to see in a variety of guests, including former players, former and current coaches, pastors, and others will discuss relevant issues in coaching today's athlete the goal of equipping the athlete and those coaching them with the physical, mental, and spiritual armor necessary to live their best life. Here's Coach Connors. Uh, welcome to our seventh show. Uh, today is a very special day because we have Major Warren Green with us. And uh, I had the privilege of coaching Warren at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, during his career with the football football program there, and uh, it really was a joy to coach him because he was a very hard worker, and his success uh, with the Army is no surprise to me uh, because he always had uh, great character and great integrity with anything that he did. Um, so a little bit about Warren. Uh, got his B.A. in exercise sports science uh, from UNC. Uh, he came in from Triton High School in Dunn, North Carolina. And before I go on here, Major, uh, tell us a little bit about Triton because Triton seems to be, and Dunn, North Carolina seems to be somewhat of a famous place for some characters that I've met over the years at East Carolina and North Carolina. But uh, there seem to be a lot of athletes that come out of there. Uh, yeah, Coach. Um, it's a small town. Um, I remember growing up, you know, in the early 90s, we had a lot of a uh, lot of good athletes. Um, the two that you're talking about is uh, Eddie and Nikki Crabtree. Yeah. Uh, both went to East Carolina uh, as punters and, and holder. Um, and they actually are kind of the reason that got me going down the specialist route uh, when I was in high school. Um Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a, it's a, we've, we've had some good athletes come out of there. Uh, Clayton White was a linebacker at NC State uh, from 97 to 2000, I believe. Um, played in the NFL for the New York Giants. He's now the defensive coordinator at the University of South Carolina. Um, yeah. We've also had, you know, a couple other guys. Another long snapper was uh, Larry Daltrey. Um, he long snapped for NC State as well. Um, but a small town, a small community, uh, a great community. I had, I had a great childhood growing up there. Um, yeah. And then, as you know, Coach, I think the first time I met you was right in front of our famous Sherry's Bakery, which was the, you know, the <laughs> that's <burner>. right. <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite places in North Carolina, Sherry's Bakery. And I've yeah. uh, been there a few times, uh, but uh, done, of course. Seem like a very close knit community, and then uh, also that goes with that is everybody knows everything about everybody else in Dunn. So that was pretty interesting too uh, over the yeah. years of stories I've heard. So, uh, uh, but anyway, uh, you've done th- you have done done proud. Oh, I hope so. I hope yeah. so. Uh, so I'm going to get into a little bit about your uh, uh, background here. Uh, U.S. Aviator badge, uh, commercial pilot's license. Uh, aviation maintenance officer course, uh, aviation captain's career course. Uh, the name of the Apache is AH-64D and uh, maintenance test pilots course, 114 hours as a test pilot. 
And every time I hear those words, test pilot, I think about danger. So uh, that's that's interesting that you have. Uh, and, and as I understand, we'll talk about a little bit. You're still a test pilot. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm uh, still so, a test pilot. And, and, and frequently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, command and general staff college, Air Calvary leaders course, uh, now logistics management officer of 18 AH-64D Apache helicopters and four LUH-72A Lakotas. And so you're basically overseeing, as I understand it, about $2.5 billion worth of equipment. And you have 1,779 hours of flight time over 14 years. Uh, and, of course, I guess that grows by the day. And then uh, you're, you are now doing, you're overseeing the maintenance, kind of overseeing pretty much everything, I guess. And also uh, doing the post-maintenance test test flight. So when when a helicopter comes in from a certain flight or mission, you basically do the maintenance check and then you have to go out and test it to make sure it's right before it goes out again. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct, coach. Um, you know, these helicopters, they're, they're like, uh, they're kind of like a car and any yeah. other mechanical piece of equipment, just a lot of electronics tied to it. Um, so each aircraft, it, you know, it has scheduled maintenance phases, uh, and then it has unscheduled maintenance phases. Um, right. Sometimes, you know, an aircraft can be full mission capable. Pilot goes out, they come back, they have a malfunction with something. Uh, we'll depend on what it is. Uh, we'll either completely ground that aircraft or we might restrict it from a night flight. It depends on what it is. Uh, we then turn that over to our ma- maintainers. Um, these guys are solid soldiers you know they they're a lot of gearheads they can you know they can work on just about anything you give them um so they'll get in the uh our integrated electronic technical manual um they'll run the fault isolation procedure uh once they figure out what's going on and identify the problem then it's either replace or you know or disconnect reconnect uh, but depending on what the maintenance uh, malfunction is, um, there's normally a ground run um, that we'll do as maintenance test pilots. We'll go out, we'll do all our checks on the ground. And before we lift it off, you know, the aircraft back into flight, we'll go out and do those flight maneuvers. And depending on, you know, like I said, what the unscheduled maintenance is, uh, it determines what maneuvers and procedure checks that we have to do. Um, the big one that's really interesting um, is you know like i said these things the scheduled maintenance that we do on these aircraft each aircraft has 500 hours on it you know um and within that 500 hour period you know we'll do a 125 hour check we'll do a 250 hour check and each one's a little bit more in depth on what we take apart and inspect Uh, but the big one is a 500 hour uh inspection so once an aircraft flies 500 hours our guys we have a phase team um, it's usually led by our most, one of our most experienced mechanics and they tear that thing apart. They take the engines out, they take the transmissions out, all the, um, all the high power, uh, electrical modules, they all come out. Everything gets inspected, put back together, either replaced and put back together, or we just get a new one. 
Uh, that normally takes anywhere from about 30 to 60 days. Uh, I've seen our guys do two 500-hour inspections within about a 90-day window, which is – and doing those at the same time. Um, now, once that phase is complete, that's the one where, you know, you're cranking the aircraft up for the first time after it's been torn apart. So there's really no telling, you know, what that aircraft is going to do. Um, so we have a lot of ground maintenance checks that we have to do, yeah. a lot of engine checks. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we'll take it into flight and then we'll go out and we'll knock out all our, our post phase maintenance test flight checks. Uh, we'll climb up the altitude. We'll push the emits into their limits. Uh, we'll make sure that all the limiter settings are operating like they're supposed to, to help keep the aviators, you know, out of, you know, bad territory with exceeding things. Um, and that's where, that's where it gets really interesting. Um, yeah. you know, we're splitting, you know, I'm back there. I'll split power levers. I'll pull an engine power lever back, reduce the power on one engine to get another one to kind of get into a TGT limiter setting. Uh, and then the big one that always kind of gets me is that is our maintenance auto rotation. Um, and that's where we're checking the rotor RPM, uh, revolutions per minute on the main rotor, uh, making sure that it's going to operate within the limitations that it's supposed to. Uh, with that check, I climb up to about 3,000 feet. Um, I'll pull one engine back to idle. Uh, and then I'll start a descent or reduce the power out. And then you kind of start descending. It's a controlled descent. And then you pull the second power lever back to idle. Um, and so now both engines are idle and you're checking the rotor RPM uh, to make sure that the aircraft is staying within its limits. Um, and just it's a very finesse flight maneuver that we have to do. And every time I have to get ready to do it, I always... I always get nervous. Uh, yeah. But I always tell myself anytime that I get ready to do this check and I'm not nervous, something's wrong. Well, that's some deep stuff, man. I mean, uh, I went up to the, like the, I got picked to go on some leadership deal at the Pentagon one time. We went out to the Marine Corps uh, base and they took us up in a helicopter. And before we went up, the guy says to us, Hey, uh, if, if you see a fire in here, if this thing catches fire or something like that, you know, don't, don't get too concerned. I'll, I'll give you, I'll tell you what to do, you know? And I was like, yeah. I was like, okay. And, and then the whole back of it was open the whole time. So I don't know what kind of helicopter that was, but uh, uh, that was an interesting experience, of course. And, you know, you do hear a lot of uh, over the years, uh, helicopter crashes in the military. So it's, uh, I know you got to have everything right. That's for sure. <clears throat> yeah. It's, uh, it's inherently dangerous, uh, what we do. Um, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's thrilling. I enjoy it. Uh, if I actually gotten to where I met with my experience level, depending on what we're doing, uh, a lot of times going and flying is kind of a decompressor for me. That's kind of, you know, odd to hear but you know it's uh it's a, something i have a passion for i really do love being an aviator i love training these other pilots um yeah letting them get to experience some things that you know not a whole lot of people get to do i mean not a lot of people get to go up in a helicopter and every time that i go fly uh i'm always just amazed like i can't believe i get paid to do this and uh right. you know it's just it really is a joy for me that's awesome. Well, getting back to your background, uh, also in your background, company commander, uh, C Company, 1 to 130th Attack Reconnaissance Battalion, uh, December 2011 to September uh, 2014, uh, company commander in AH.64D uh, Apache Piloting Command, 
uh, in your training, you've had uh, 358 hours of night vision uh, training. You've been through the North Carolina mountains, I guess, several times training. And in Iraq, you had 92 combat missions, uh, 300 flight hours, and you were in charge of five pilots and nine crew chiefs, and you had zero losses of personnel and aircraft. And so, uh, uh, you know, that's extremely impressive. And, uh, of course, through that whole experience, which, you know, I'll, I'll ask you some more questions about that here in a few minutes, but... Um, uh, that had to be probably the most significant part of your whole experience, you know, uh, in in the army. Uh, and uh, so, I'll let you say a few things about that. But I've got some very specific questions for you about that as well. Um, but uh, just give me a general summary of that experience. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I commissioned in 2006, um, you know, had a little bit of time. I was waiting to go to flight school. Uh, I joined the North Carolina Army National Guard. Uh, the reason I joined that is um, when I joined ROTC at Carolina, um, I wanted to really get the, the my number one branch. And for me, that was aviation. I wanted to be a pilot. Um, right. So I go off to flight school. I knew that the unit that I was assigned to had a deployment to Iraq coming up. Um, so here I am, brand new Lieutenant, just graduated flight school, you know, riding high, I'm feeling good about myself and, you know, come home, drop my bags in my new house. And then I'm off to Fort hood for pre-mobilization training. Um, it was actually kind of a, a shocker. Um, you know, brand new Lieutenant, you're, you're really in this kind of, I don't want to say weird, but when you, when you think about it, you know, you, you're in charge of guys that you're half their age and they've got 20 plus years of experience and you, know, you have to come in here and make a decision. Um, I learned real quick, like my, my take on it was I'm not going to come in here and start barking orders and I'm going to listen. I need to listen to the experience, you know, non-commissioned officers. I need to listen to my experience, instructor pilots, maintenance test pilots, um, and gather as much information I can and then make an informed decision. Um, you know, so we go, we go to Iraq in 2009. Uh, I'm a platoon leader at this point. And, uh, you know, the, the biggest thing that kept running through my mind was, you know, making sure that I'm doing the right thing by my guys, you know, um, right. there's, you know, we always have to make decisions, hard decisions at times. Um, that could put people's lives at danger. Um, and, you know, I just, to me, I didn't want to always make a rash decision or, you know, without thinking things through. I like to have a plan. Uh, sometimes you just have to make a decision and go with it. Uh, and sometimes, you know, there's time to think about it, develop a well thought out plan. Um, my deployment in 2009, that was my first of two. Um, but that was right there towards the beginning of the drawdown of Iraq. Uh, rules of engagement were very strict. Um, we were restricted on our altitude as far as what we could fly. Um, and, you know, you've, you've heard the, the stories about guys getting um, sent to Leavenworth for stuff like that. So um, we're, you know, not, you know, pulling the trigger when they shouldn't have pulled the trigger. Um, and that's always just, 
sitting there in the back of your mind. Uh, but it's, you know, you have to trust, you know, your instinct. You have to trust the situation. Um, you know, it's a lot of crew coordination in the Apache. Um, it's not just one person making a decision. You know, that pilot in command is ultimately responsible for the operation of that aircraft. And you might, I might be a lieutenant or I might be a major in the aircraft, but I might have a, a chief warrant officer, two or three or four in the back. You know, I outrank them, but yeah. I'm not the pilot in command. I'm not in charge. Um, so there's a lot of crew coordination, a lot of back and forth, making sure that we're about to make the right decision. Um, it was really eye-opening to me. Um, it's people have asked me before, like, hey, what's it like over there? Um, it's it's different, you know, and it really makes you value, you know, the things that we have here in America, uh, sometimes that we take for granted. Um, but, you know, I, I can tell you from my experiences that, you know, a lot of things that people complain about, you know, maybe don't really understand how, how good they have it. Um, and yes. that's how I try to, you know, live my life now. It's like, yeah, I might have a bad day, but at the same time, like, is it really that bad? No, it's just, you know, it's just a short period and, and things will get better. Um, it, it gets real over there, uh, you know, flying around and, you know, you've got certain systems going off telling you one thing and, you know, you've got, you know, at night when you lay down to go to bed, you know, sirens might go off from the indirect fire. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it, it, it was very eye-opening for me. And, and at that time I was 24. Um, so mm. it was a lot of, you know, thinking back on it, you know, you, you're looking at it like, man, I was 24 and, you know, how did I, you know, you know, how do you get through it type deal, you know, and, you know, I'm very fortunate um, for the company and the platoon that I was assigned to. I had great soldiers, great pilots, and a lot of experience. And I, and I really relied on them uh, to help me, you know, make those decisions that I could at my level. Um, you know, in the military, as you know, coach, there's a chain, a chain of command. And, yeah. you know, now it's like, hey, don't make decisions that your rank can't handle. Um, right. But yeah, that first deployment was, um, it was, it was eye opener for me. Um, I knew I was deploying and I wanted to serve. I wanted to deploy. Um, and uh, it definitely had a, it had an impact on my, on my life. So. Well, that's a ton of responsibility for someone 24 years old. Um, So, uh, can you hear me? Yeah, coach, I can hear you. Okay. Just checking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's go back and, uh, talk a little bit about that whole preparation period, you know, uh, even back through college, through football, uh, I know that you had to have very extensive training, uh, you know, before you, of course, were deployed for that first time, but I want to kind of go back to Coach Bunning and uh, a little bit about his influence and uh, what he was about as a head coach. And Coach Bunning, and I know that you and I, are, we've talked about this some, you know, he was all about character and integrity and doing things right. 
Uh, I think Coach Bunning would have been a great military leader. Uh, and he was pretty much leadership by the book. And I'm assuming in in all the, the leadership training that you've had, it's kind of it is kind of leadership by the book, the Army way. Yeah. Um, uh, Coach Coach Bunning was challenged with uh, a very, I guess you could say, a very challenging out of conference schedule, along with the fact that the conference was pretty strong during that time. You know, uh, Maryland was strong, and Virginia Tech and Clemson, of course, Florida State, waking you know, all those all those programs were strong, along with the fact that you know they they scheduled uh, Texas twice, Oklahoma, Wisconsin, Arizona State twice, Notre Dame, Louisville during their heyday, of course, when they were winning eleven and twelve games three times. Uh, South Florida was a really good team during that time, you know, and, and that was another one that was supposed to be, a, you know, another easy win out of conference. I don't think so. But uh, and then then you have Miami of Ohio and they had Roethlisberger at that time. It was a senior uh, quarterback. So not great luck for Coach Bunning as far as the out of conference schedule went. Uh, and. Of course, Coach Bunning, when he was recruiting, you know, I think that he prioritized, you know, character and integrity. You know, it wasn't just all about the talent. You know, he wanted to bring guys in uh, that had the good, the, the great intangibles, probably first. And uh, I thought that during his last couple of years that he really signed some great kids that, that Butch benefited from. Uh, but I guess it was a little bit too late at that time, you know, over that six-year period. But uh, I know that you and I both have uh, a great opinion of Coach Bunning and what he stood for. And, of course, he played 14 years as a linebacker for the Philadelphia Eagles. And, I mean, uh, you just don't do that unless you're, you know, a, a tough a tough hombre, and that's what he was. And uh, and the other guy I want to mention, too, on my staff, Jeff Carr, of course, I kind of gave him the specialist. And he took a lot of pride in that, you know, he really did. And, uh, you know, of course, he played for us at ECU and then he came in as my assistant or uh, might have been GA first, then assistant. I don't even remember. But at the same time, uh, I gave him one of those duties because I knew he could do a great job with you guys, which he did. And so, uh, you know, when I, I uh, actually wrote this book, OK, Collegiate Battlefield. All right. So. You can see there's a helicopter on the cover. Oh, yeah. I don't know what kind it is. I think it's an Apache. It looks like an <laughs> Apache, coach. But anyway, uh, yeah, I wrote a couple books. I, I just kind of write for my own benefit and, uh, you know, just gives me a, an outlet, of course, uh, to express some things. If somebody wants to read it, that's great. But I've always believed in – Military principles applied to athletics. Uh, I've always believed that the New Testament and and uh, the epistles have a great many things uh, that apply to athletics. And, of course, the rest of the world agrees with that as well, I think. And uh, so the one thing that I – and I talked to Al Miller about this on the last podcast – and what I talked about was every year you see these upsets. 
Uh, Nebraska was upset by Georgia Southern, Notre Dame by, uh, you know, Marshall, uh, App State upset, uh, Texas A&M, whatever. So you, you know that these programs have better talent. But for some reason, you see this every single year. And so to me, it's all about, you know, how can we strengthen the human dimension? And if you read any military manual, and this comes from the Marine Corps Warfighting Skills Manual, basically stating that the chief incalculable is the human will. And because uh, it is the human dimension which infuses war with its intangible moral factors, which, I mean, those words right there, I, mean, it's, I can't even tell you how much, you know, that rings true with what I believe. And uh, war is shaped by human nature and is subject to, and these three things are incredible complexities, inconsistencies, and peculiarities. I have a hard time with that word, but <laughs> at the same time, you know, if you look at collegiate players week in and week out, and you've probably seen this in the military, um, you know, complexities and inconsistencies, they can burn you down. And of course, we've seen a lot of peculiar people here and there through athletics as well. You know, you pretty much have them on your team all the time. Yeah. You're trying to figure them out from one, one week to the next. Uh, and then it talks about the importance of human emotions, which I've always believed are extremely important to athletics. Not everybody believes that. You know, everybody, some people just believe in execution and emotion only lasts for the first three plays, whatever. So, but, uh, so I was just wondering, you know, what are your thoughts uh, where that is concerned, the importance of the human dimension in what you do and the people you have led and what you've learned about leadership and motivation through your experience as a leader in the military? Yeah, we actually um, lately, you know, we, we've heard a lot of, hey, I want to impose my will on the enemy. Um, and... You know, there's different types of leadership um, that you'll experience in the military. There are some that they get real passionate and they get loud uh, and that, you know, and it's not that they're trying to de um, degrade anybody or anything. It's just the way they lead. Uh, then I've experienced guys that are a little bit more laid back. Um, and I try to take a little bit of both. Uh, I've always tried to. I have a passion for what I do and I have a passion for leading soldiers and, and other pilots. Um, but I've often told guys, I was like, Hey, you know, how, how we communicate with one another really determines how effective this we are, how effective we are as an organization. Uh, you know, growing up with me, you know, you know, coach, I mean, you've told me, I mean, you, I, the most, you know, I have a lot of respect for you. You always told me like it was. Um, and I could handle that. I'm like, if I was messing up on something, okay, coach, got it. I'm going to fix it. And you know, I'll move on. Uh, nowadays, you know, you have to kind of figure out what makes guys or gals tick, you know, what motivates them, what drives them. Uh, right. so it might be incentive. It might be a reward or, 
you know, sometimes you're just not going to get the best out of everybody. Um, yeah. But I've always tried to uh, be understanding uh, of the situation that I'm, I'm dealt with uh, and try to take that calm, level-headed approach. Uh, you know, one of my previous commanders, he's like, you know, emotional discipline and emotional intelligence, you know, as leaders is one of the most important things that we can, that we can uh, do as leaders. And, and I understand where he's coming from. Once you're placed yeah. in a stressful environment, um, you know, combat or any type of combat training center rotation and you're stressed and you've been up for anywhere from 16 to 20 hours, uh, you're mentally fatigued, you're physically fatigued. Uh, and then the emotional fatigue comes in and sometimes you, you know, overreact, um, you know, you might chew somebody out and maybe they deserved it. But then afterwards you might sit back and like, Hey, you know, maybe I overreacted. Um, and my leadership yeah. style was if that ever happened to me, which it has, um, you know, I go find that officer or NCO and I was like, Hey, look, you know, I, I want to let you know, like I overreacted. I apologize for that. But do you understand where I was trying to get at? You know, right. and a lot of times they get, they give me the North and South and they're like, yes, sir. I got it, Roger. And, um, you know, sometimes they just appreciate that. You know, to me, it lets them know that they, they know that I understand, Hey, we're all human. You know, we're all going to make mistakes, but at the same time, you know, I got to own it. Um, and then, you know, as far as keeping them motivated, you know, we talked about this the other day, coach, you know, when I first came in the military, it was, you know, be here at this time in this uniform, no questions asked. That's what you did. Um, and now with, you know, this younger generation with all the technology that we have and cell phones and social media, they have everything right here at their fingertips. So, um, you have to tell, you have to give them the why you have to give them that instate before you can tell them to do it. Um, and I think if we can get them to understand, Hey, this is why you're doing said task. Um, you know, they seem to get on board more, uh, with the program. Um, but yeah, it's um, as far as, you know, you get different personalities. Um, and, I, and I've told guys and, and gals, like, hey, like, I don't deal with the high school drama. I don't deal with the um, with the personality stuff. You know, we walk through this door. We're here to do a job. We're going to be professional. Uh, if you don't like the person that you're working with, hey, I understand that. But you can't let that get away in the way of, what we're trying to achieve here uh you know at the flight facility it's safe flyable aircraft and you know a risk that i'm not willing to take is somebody you know differences you know affecting the job and the, and the quality of the aircraft that we're putting up for flight um so i think being up front with them and getting them to understand hey this is why we're doing what we're doing um really helps bring out the work ethic and bring out the best uh, of their capabilities Uh, so <clears throat> I've already told you that, uh, of course, the faith aspect is important to this podcast. That's kind of what, what we're about. Um, you talked a little bit about growing up, a little bit about your family and your grandma and so forth. And uh, I know that faith is, has been important to you through your career. And uh, just talk a little bit about uh, learning those valuable things as you grew up and done. Yeah. Uh, you know, my mom and dad, um, 
you know, I had two older brothers, you know, they, they were, you know, important part of, you know, my raising as well. I learned a lot from them. Um, you know, we went to church on Sundays, you know, my mom, I mean, she was determined. She, it wasn't an option. You know, she's like, you're going to be involved in the church family and you're going to go do things outside of athletics and school. And, um, and I'm glad she pushed me to do that. And my older brothers, um, you know, my dad was, you know, 20 year veteran, you know, enlisted Sergeant first class, 82nd airborne paratrooper. Uh, Mm. You know, when oh, he yeah. said when he said jump, you said how high, Dad, and yeah. and that's the way it was. You know, my dad was, you know, disciplined, um, and they've really helped us. You know, I'm very thankful for how hard my mom and dad were on. You know, me and my brothers growing up. Um, I think that has a, a lot to do with the character um, that that we have. Um, you know, my grandmother, you know, I told you the other day, you know, it didn't really dawn on me till later in my life. But, you know, she said anytime that she gave me a ride somewhere or anytime that I came home from Carolina, uh, I would always go by and visit my, my grandmother and my grandfather on my mom's side. Um, my dad's side, they, um, <clears throat> my grandfather passed away at, at, when I was younger. Um, also a World War II veteran, just uh, one, one heck of a man. Um, but she would always... Every time I left, the last thing she said, she said, don't forget who you are, or, you know, or remember who you are, Warren. And I was like, yeah, okay, grandmother, you know, like, love you too. And it didn't really dawn on me until, you know, later in my life when I, I really, you know, faced some adversity, uh, you know, post-deployments. And it really resonated with me. Um, but being involved with, you know, our church family uh, growing up, you know, youth programs, you know, my mom's like, hey, you can – you're either going to sing choir or you're going to play handbells. And coach, I'm not a singer. So hand, handbells it was. Handbells. And, um, but I, you know, I really, I really am glad that they, they pushed me to do that uh, and kept that, yeah. kept me involved in our church family. I mean, I did everything from going up to DC, working in the food, food shelters with our youth program. Um, and I didn't at the time, like I knew it was a good thing, uh, but you don't really see it, you know, the impact that you're having on that, right. you know, those younger kids that, that look up to you, um, you know, in a small town, you know, we had Triton, you know, and if you, you know, played football, you know, people knew who you were. Um, but, you know, I'm glad that I had that, that part instilled in me and, you know, hopefully, you know, I can do the same for my kids, you know, my two children. So. Absolutely. Well, <clears throat> This might sound crazy, but I'm really big on rhythm, and I got drums in my garage. I'm just a garage drummer. But I'm telling you, playing those handbells, it may have helped you with what you do with helicopters. You're gonna, you might think that's nuts, but I really believe that because I believe rhythm is the key to a lot of things in life. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, you know, you're probably right, Coach. I've never thought about that, but you, know, wow. you, might, you might have a good point there. Um, you know, a lot of people that, you know, uh, I, you know, I took my wife, she's flown in the simulator. I took my brother, he's flown in the simulator and they don't, it is, you know, you're moving both feet and both hands at the same time, um, yeah. you know, when you're flying a helicopter, but you know, I didn't really think about that. <laughs> hey, just food for thought. You know, yeah. I'm, I think outside of the box a lot of times, that's why I had to write <laughs> these books for myself. Yeah. Um, but uh, 
Wanted to ask you about that first deployment, a couple more questions. Uh, kind of like your daily concerns, uh, things you had to overcome, like within yourself to put yourself in the right frame of mind. I mean, you're right in the middle of a war, uh, you know, right in the middle of, you know, a battlefield, whatever. And uh, because I'm sure that you had to be an example for those under you. It's just like a strength coach showing up at five 30 in the morning. You got to show up with enthusiasm mm -hmm. and uh, you know, because everybody is going to basically uh, observe your intensity, you know, your attitude, your enthusiasm. So in developing a, a team chemistry, for example, uh, you know, give, give me a couple of thoughts there. And also, uh, was the chaplain important? Was there a chaplain? Was was that chaplain important to your team? And uh, because, you know, you had 92 missions with uh, zero losses. So, hey, what was the strategy? What was the formula for success? Uh, yeah, so, um, you yeah, know, being in that leadership position, um, you know, I always prided myself on, you know, if my shift started at, you know, at my shifts, they, it changed a couple of times depending on where you were, uh, in your duty cycle. But I you know, say my shift started at eight o'clock and I ran, we would normally run 12 hour shifts and I would go eight, eight o'clock in the morning, eight o'clock at night. Um, I would always try to be there, be the first one in, um, you know, be there maybe an hour prior. Uh, and yeah. um, I had other administrative requirements I had to take care of too. Um, so I would always try to knock that out. If we had a mission or I was flying, I wanted to make sure that I understood where we were going, what our task and purpose was. You know, so when I sat down to do the brief, like, Hey, it's time to rock and roll. Here's what we're doing. Um, it's, you know, the chaplain, every battalion uh, has a chaplain assigned to it. Uh, every every echelon in the army, uh, there's a battalion chaplain, there's a brigade chaplain, um, there's division chaplains. Um, they're at every echelon, uh, and and they really do play a huge role uh, when you're deployed. Uh, you know, like yeah. we talked the other day, when you're deployed, you know, over there, you're you're isolated. You must you're in your own bubble. You you know, there's no. Um, you have a set routine. This is the world that you're in. Um, but it doesn't mean that things back home aren't happening, you know? Um, so having, you know, you're going to have soldiers that show up and, you know, they may have had a phone call with their wife, girlfriend, you know, partner, whatever. And it's really affecting them. Um, so having that chaplain there to be able to push them, uh, some services, uh, just somebody to talk to. Um, yeah. It, it was huge because just because you're isolated, I mean, life's still happening. Even though you're, you know, 9,000 miles away on the other side of the world, you know, there's still bills that are being paid back home. Family, you know, wives are holding down the fort, taking care of the kids. You know, you're not there to help out. Um, right. But, you know, having a chaplain there um, to be able to check morale. And that's it. it and that's what they would do. They would go around and, and we just talk, Hey, how are you doing? When's the last time you talked to your, you know, your parents? When's the last time you talked to your, to your wives? And, um, you know, if there were guys that I knew that hadn't called home, I'd be like, you need to go get on the phone right now. Go call your wife, go call your mom, 
see how they're doing. Let them hear your voice. At a minimum, you should be sending some type of email to let right. them know that you're safe uh, and that things are okay. Um, but, you know, the chaplain, you know, Sundays, we have religious services. The you know, chaplain sets those. And uh, from a leadership standpoint, if a soldier came to me, hey, sir, I want to go to chaplain service. Yep, you got it, man. Go ahead. Uh, even right. if we had a, a certain task that had to be done, um, I never, you, you know, you never deny um, that relationship with the chaplain, you know, from soldier. It, it just doesn't happen. Um, yeah. You know, well, that. when you get to be 66 years old, like me, you're in a mortality check. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of like what you're in. Uh, mortality check. You, know, you you go to the doctor for your checkups every three or four months. You hope everything's good. Uh, you know, I've been through a, a few things, but, you know, when you're when you're 20 years old and you're in the middle of a war, you got that mortality check every day. Yeah, uh, because uh, I know that. If it were me and I have not been in a war, but I would want that prayer, I, I would want that available to me. At, you know, at all times. And, uh, you know, that's to, to me, that's that's part of the deal. And, you know, I I had the, the experience of working at Marsoc for about six, seven months uh, with 2nd, 3rd Battalion Special Ops. And uh, that was a very interesting experience. And I had to go through two straight days of uh, suicide prevention training. And the statistics on veterans and active members of the military as far as suicide rate was staggering to me. And uh, so that in itself uh, would tell you something about the importance of the chaplain, the importance, the importance of a spiritual connection. And uh, so I just think that that's, that's really important and important for us to mention. And, uh, yeah, you know, I just think at this point, where we're at in our country, and what I what I see on the news, and what I read every day, and you know all the things that you see, uh, that that spiritual connection is important to everybody out there. So that's that's really a big thing with this podcast that you know that I want to keep promoting. Um, uh, so a little bit about that second deployment that you had and how that was different. Yeah. Um, so second deployment was, uh, 2017 to 18, uh, went back to Iraq for a second time. Um, and, uh, it was different. You know, this was, uh, the first deployment in 09, 10, uh, was operation Iraqi freedom. Um, then, you know, 2010, we withdrew from Iraq, uh, OIF ended, uh, and then 2016, I believe 2014, um, operation inherent resolve stood up. Uh, and that was keeping a small contingent force in Iraq, kind of partnered with the Iraqi forces, um, trying to stabilize the, the region there, um, you know, in the central northern part of Iraq and into Syria. Um, but uh, the biggest difference then was uh, I got promoted a major right before. Uh, and I didn't expect that. I was happy. It was, you know, it was great. Um but uh, I was a I was a staff officer, um, so I wasn't flying uh, at the time. Uh, I was a true staff officer. Uh, did a lot of planning. 
Uh, I was in the um, future operations plan sale uh, from our for our brigade headquarters. Um, we were a task force, so when you form a task force, it's not just Apaches. You now have Chinooks, Blackhawks, Medevac uh, that you also have to to plan for. Um, and uh, I oversaw and was integrated very intimately with the planning of all aviation operations uh, for that rotation. Uh, everything from attack assets to medevac to uh, air assaults to uh, just general movement of supplies. Um, and most, most of the time when guys, you know, it's hard to come out of line company as a captain. Uh, it's hard to come out of that role because you want to, you want to fly, you want to be in the fight. Um, but that was that deployment was really eye opening to me because I didn't really understand at the time how important, you know, being a staff officer was, um, you know, until you're developing the plan and you're handing it now to a unit, you know, hey, go execute this plan. Um, and it's something, you know, you and your team develop. So, uh, you know, when you really think about it, it's like, OK, is that plan solid enough? Is it good enough for them to go execute and come home safe? Um, and, and so it was different in the fact that I wasn't out flying around, uh, but it was still a very important part of the deployment and combat situation with developing those plans. Well, let me, uh, I just had a, a a little kind of a, a memory here because I've studied a lot of military stuff. So uh, the formula, as I remember, was strategic, which could be, I guess, national, and then military strategy, and then you have tactical, uh, and then in between you got operational that's going to connect the two. Is that kind of yeah, yeah? Um, once you get at the brigade headquarters, uh, it's the that is the lowest level of tactical operations. Like you're, we always plan two levels down. So if I'm planning an attack mission for an attack company, I'm going to plan it down to a platoon level. And, uh, you know, I'll put in the order like, Hey, first platoon, you're going to go here and execute this attack. Second platoon, you're going to go here and provide support by fire. Um, right. Yeah. So you always plan two levels down. Uh, you just have to be very careful, careful about, you know, not, um, getting too far down into weeds, understanding where your role is, uh, and then allowing that subordinate commander enough time to analyze the mission and then dive even deeper into uh, how he's going to achieve that mission. Yeah, the other thing that I was thinking about that I, I wanted to ask you is when you send out Apaches and <clears> – <throat> You know, you talked about that first deployment where you didn't really have to engage a lot, but does the mere presence of the Apache deter the enemy when the enemy knows that, okay, we got some Apaches in the air, let's jump in this cave and act like we're not even here. I mean, so uh, what's the mere presence of the, the, of the Apache, you know, is, yeah, that's, is that significant? Uh, oh, yeah. I, absolutely. Uh, I, I can remember one one uh, specific mission. Um, we were doing our standard uh, reconnaissance mission, um, and we end up, we saw these, it was along the Euphrates River, 
And um, at the time, you know, um, the enemy, they were using the Euphrates rivers and boat to transfer weapons up and down uh, without having to put them on the highway and go through checkpoints. And so we saw this group of guys and they had these little wooden boats and they kept unloading this stuff out of the truck into the boat. And, you know, so we sat there, we circled them a couple times. They saw us and then we, we left, we departed and we just flew out a couple miles. We wanted to see uh, if they were still going to continue on because they stopped, uh, came back uh, inbound and, what we did was we kind of split our flight formation. We always went out as a team of two. You never went out single ship. You always had two aircraft, an aerial weapons team. And uh, so we took our wingman, we pushed him up high to provide cover. And then in my backseater and I, we actually came screaming down the Euphrates River at about 50 feet uh, just to do a quick show of force. Um, the dude was already in the boat. He jumps out, he starts swimming to the bank, boats going down the river. Um, but yeah, the, the mere presence of it, you know, the enemy is always observing. Um, they're always studying us. Um, you know, you've probably seen multiple, you know, movies of yeah. you know, the terrorists with the cell phone and uh, it happens, you know, they'll yeah. sit there and observe the base and be like, Hey, you know, two Apaches just took off. And then now we have to counteract that and figure out, okay, how do we, how do we mix it up? You know, how do we uh, be unpredictable in what we're doing? Um, but yeah, just the, the sheer presence of it. Um, it's, it, it puts the fear in them. And, 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 um, how fast can you go straight ahead? Um, we right now in a Delta model, we can go about a hundred depending on the winds. Uh, we can go max. I've seen is about 130 knots. So you're looking a little bit over 200 miles an hour. So something like 200 that. miles an hour, 50 feet over your head. Doesn't feel too good. No, no, it's uh, <laughs> and you know the, the vibrations. You know, I could be at a thousand yeah. feet, and you'll feel the vibrations. Um, yeah, you know, from the rotor system. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, it's uh, they they knew what it, they knew what the Apache was, and they knew what yeah. we were there to do. Uh, and I like to think that you know, as frustrating as it got on that deployment with you know just flying around. Um, you know, I like I like to, you know, pride myself on, okay, well, you know, while I was flying, you know, nobody, nobody got killed, you know, nobody got shot at, and right. uh, they were able to go home to their family, so. Yeah, awesome. That's what it's all about. Uh, <clears throat> so, a couple things. Uh, I want to get back to football a little bit in uh, parallel with the military, uh, there's this question out there. I, I went to a conference a couple years ago and they were actually asking this question, can toughness be developed? Uh, and of course, this is something I always believed that, that could. And that's why I always try to run a tough program because I very strongly believe that toughness could be developed. And the thing is, if you don't have a standard of toughness or a standard of whatever your program is, it's running, it's lifting, speed work, whatever. Uh, you got a sand pit, you got all these different things that you can do to make things a little tougher physically. But at the same time, if you look at the military, 
the way that you advance to special operations, the way that you advance to different levels in the military is you have to prove your physical capability. You have to prove that you are tough. And if you, you know, that's the whole thing with uh, Navy SEALs, as far as I'm concerned, it's mental and physical toughness. And, you know, if you don't have it, you're not going to be a Navy SEAL. And it's the same thing with Delta Force. Uh, You know, they're going to give you a map and tell you, hey, go to this location. And you've got a certain amount of weight that you're in your pack, whatever. You got a certain amount of time to get to that location. When you get there, they're going to hand you another map. And, you know, I know a little bit about that because I've studied it. And I did. I had a a guy talk to our football team who he wouldn't tell me he was going to train for Delta Force. But I knew that's what it had to be because he's going down to Georgia Mountain somewhere. Oh, yeah. So uh, and this all started as I as I've studied over in England somewhere. And then, you know, it came to the United States. So it it actually even goes back to that. But uh, Charles Beckwith, uh, I'm sure you might have heard that name. Um, But uh, Colonel Charles Beckwith. Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, what's your feelings on that? I mean, uh, do you feel like toughness can be developed? And is, is that something that's prevalent within the army uh, as a belief? Yeah, I, I do coach hundred um, percent. You know, I, you know, I, I'm not special ops or anything like that. Um, I did go through when I was in flight school, I did have to go through uh SEER school, uh, the surviving oh, yeah. day just escape. Uh, and uh, I think that, that course uh, really, um, it'll stress you. Uh, but I think in order to develop that toughness, it's, um, it's really a, starts with the mental toughness. Yeah. Are you willing to push yourself? You know, I read a book, great book. I'm sure you had too. It's called can't hurt me by David Goggins, former seal, uh, actually assessed with the special forces. Uh, you know, in that book, he talks about, you know, the mind is, the mind is like a governor. And that once it hits 40%, you know, it tells your body, hey, that's enough. It's time to shut down. Uh, what I learned in Sears school was that my body and my physical fitness, because I was in pretty decent shape, you know, it can go a lot. It can do a lot more and go a lot further than what my brain is telling me it can. Right. Because, you know, once you hit that fatigue, you know, once you get tired, you know, you're ready to call it quits. Um, but if start if you can develop that mental toughness, like no, I can keep going and I can push myself. Um, you know, the physical toughness I believe will catch up with it. Um, yeah, and yeah, that's kind of my take on it. You know, and and I tell you know this past national training center that we went to. I mean, that, that is a uh, rigorous training event, yeah. um, and it pushes you. you know, I told you I was put. I lost fourteen pounds in that rotation. Uh, anywhere from 16 to 20 hour days. Uh, and you're just, it's just constant going and going and going. But yeah, I could have said, man, I'm tired. I don't feel like doing this, you know, but the position that I was in as operations officer, I mean, that's can't do that. You know, that's, yeah. it's not going to cut it. And, you know, so you have to really, I think you really have to train your mind and develop that mental toughness and then the physical fitness and the physical toughness will follow. Uh, yeah. But if you're, if you know, if you're, if you're going to say, man, I'm tired, I'm done, you're going to throw in the towel, then you're never going to get there. So 
I think it can be. I agree with you, Coach. I 100% think toughness can be taught and developed, uh, but it really starts with the mental toughness. No question. And, uh, you know, of course, you can't go to those lengths in training athletes and football players, but, you know, I, you know everybody talks about, oh, yeah, you, you know, the 300s. You know, they always want to talk about the 300s. Well, you know, that was just a vehicle for me. You know, it was just, it's not necessarily doesn't have to be a 300 or a 300 shuttle or whatever. I mean, it can be a lot of things. Uh, it can be in the weight room. It can be the temple of what you do in the weight room a certain day. You know, it can be a tough circuit or whatever, but I think you've got to have that component and, you know, and basically there's got to be agreement there, you know, as Hey, we're doing this for a purpose. Uh, there were some years that I went, uh, where we were very successful, where we had great leadership within the team, uh, you know, who really believed in that purpose and believed in, you know, coach, we need tough things because we want to be tough. You know, we want to know in the fourth quarter that we've outworked people. And, and I'm going to go back to the human dimension. And if you've gone through those types of things as a team and you believe as a team and you make that commitment week in and week out, you're not going to be subjected to upsets. Uh, you know, if you're more talented than the next team, if you have those components to go with it. And I don't think enough programs give enough thought into that in relationship to the training. Right. Yeah. And that's why, you know, that's why I believe so strongly in the influence of military training to athletics. And I'm going to believe this until they put me in the ground. So, I mean, I'm not going to change that. I'm retired now, of course, with what's happened over the years with, you know, 20 deaths at the collegiate level, many of which happened during training. And we do know that there have been de deaths uh, within military training. Mm -hmm. um, and military training is going to be much more extreme than what you would do with athletes. Uh, but obviously, you know, we don't want that to happen. Right. Uh, and, you know, I, if it ever happened with me, I'd have never been the same. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, uh, you know, but I think that you have to be very smart in bringing people along and adapting to the training and then increasing it as you go to get to a certain standard. And uh, and you have to stay within the NCAA rules and, you know, uh, you know, I get that. Yeah, I remember, um, you know, in, in the military, everything that we do, um, specifically in aviation, is uh, we always do risk assessments. Um, yeah. Every time I go and fly, I have to have to fill out this risk assessment worksheet, and then I have to go get briefed, and then have to get a final mission approval authority, and I go fly. Um, but those risk assessments, I think, you know, allow you to implement those control measures. Um, that are going to allow the training to happen in a rigorous environment, you know, but you have to put those risk mitigation techniques, those risk control measures yeah. in place and have the adequate resources um, to allow those soldiers to go train. You always have to have water, you, you know, your medics on station, uh, medevac available if needed. I mean, we were at, a, we were at an NTC, you know, those ground guys, they were dropping left and right getting evac'd out to the to the hospital with, you know, 104, 105 core temperatures. Right. Um, you know, but the reality is, you know, I'm a big, I'm a big believer, you know, this started in football and, and even 
it applies today in the military, you know, in football, you know, you practice the way you play Uh, in the military. We're going to train the way we we need to fight. Um, And, you know, you might have to put yourself in those uncomfortable situations and really push yourself to the limit uh, in order to be successful. Um, Right. You know, I remember, (laughs) I remember my freshman year, um, you know, you, you had, uh, well, I can't speak for for everybody, but to me, it was one of the toughest training weight training programs around. Um, you know, when I was in high school, we did bench press, we did squats, and then I think I went to Carolina at like two hundred pounds. And yeah. uh, you know, you you introduced me into Olympic lifting, power cleans, jerks, you know, you name it. Um, and I bought into it. I believed it. And, you know, and I won't ever forget. It was my freshman year. You you may not remember this, but I do very vividly. Uh, we didn't go to a bowl game that year. I think we won one game my freshman year. Uh, yeah. And uh, it was the last Thursday practice. We were walking from the stadium, and you looked at me, and you said, what are you weighing now? I was like, I don't know, Coach. I'm like 205, you know. And uh, you said, <laughs> you looked at me, and you said, when you come back from Christmas break, I want you to be 220. And I'm sitting here thinking, how am I going to do that? I mean, that's just like <laughs> three, four weeks. I got to put 15 pounds on. Like, but what I didn't know is that before I left to go on Christmas break, before I left campus, I had to swing by Coach Connor's office and pick up my weight training program. <laughs> yeah. And my meal plan. And, right. um, and I looked at the calories and I was like, oh, man, this is going to be tough. But. Coach said, do it. I'm going to do it. And uh, I went home and I did my workouts. Um, I wasn't too worried about the 300 conditioning tests that we had coming after Christmas break. I felt pretty good about that. Uh, But I think when I came back and I stepped on that scale, I was walking through the locker room and you said, it looks like you put on some weight. And I stepped on the scale and I was 219.5. So I'm going to round that up that I've met the 220 break. but, you know, I could have, you know, I could have said, yeah, that's not achievable. And that's, you know, I can't do that. You know, and, and taking Christmas break off and sitting around and done nothing. But um, I didn't want that. You know, I, yeah. you know, the way I was brought up was coach said, do something. You went and did it. Yeah. And it was for the betterment of the program. And and so I was all in. Um, but I, I, I tell that story quite often. People ask me you know, what was it like, you know, when you played at Carolina and what were the workouts like? And right. I just remember that very, that conversation. And, uh, <clears throat> well, uh, you know, we, we tried to individualize as much as we could. I had a great staff. I had a lot of staff members, uh, had a lot of resources. We had a nutritionist and then, you know, of course, uh, even when Butch came in, we had even more nutritionists and more resources, but, um, you know, that, that makes a difference too, uh, when you've got those resources. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, I always very much appreciated your effort and cooperation and, uh, of course, trying to meet your goals and you did a great job. And that's one of the reasons why you're still doing a great job for this country. And I really appreciate what you've done, what you're doing. And of course, I'm going to show up tomorrow, uh, 
and we're going to get, get me in that helicopter and uh, I'm going to check it out. And then if, uh, if that simulator is open where I can get in that gunner seat and mow down some of the enemy, man, I'm all about that too. But, uh, but I can't wait to get there in the morning. So we got a special appointment there. Yes, sir. So uh, we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, got a couple more minutes, but before we wrap it up, you know, just tell us a little bit about your family and, uh, uh, you know, what, what the army does in relationship to maybe some, uh, family support type programs. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, my wife, Tara, a rock star, um, you know, she's, you know, she's everything to me. We had two, two amazing kids, you know, my oldest son, Jackson, uh, who's 10 and my, uh, our youngest daughter, Asa, who's seven. Right. Um, just, you know, they're everything to me. Um, and it, I hate it. Every time I have to leave, they understand why I have to leave, uh, at times. Um, but you know, Tara's gotten to the point where she's like, you know, I'll come home and I'm like, they want me to go here, they want me to do this, and she'll just look at me and she'll say, "Well, go." You know, I got this. Um, yeah. And you know, I try to always do my part and I try to make sure things are prepared um, to set her up for success. Uh, but the army, army's got a lot of um, a lot of resources out there for for families. Um, there's family readiness groups. Yeah. Um, which connects other spouses, uh, especially when we're deployed. Um, they're really good on the active duty side. Uh, while we're deployed, um, family readiness groups, they'll send out notifications. They'll provide the families updates on what the unit's doing. Um, our chaplains actually within our state have a program that's called strong bonds. Uh, and that's an opportunity for, um, for, you know, wives and husbands or families to go and build a stronger relationship with one another. Uh, the chaplains run it. It's, you know, Christian based. Um, they, right. you know, accept all forms of religion. Um, and it's an opportunity to just reconnect with your, you know, your wife or, you know, your husband or whatnot. And uh, we've actually partaken in those before. Uh, and it's just a great resource, you know, um, to reconnect spiritually with one another. Uh, and, and that was, and that was huge. Um, we also have behavioral health services, um, which are available for families, members, soldiers that are going through hard times. Um, so all these resources are in place. Uh, and for me, from a leadership standpoint, you know, always, you know, if I'm not informing you know, soldiers and my peers of these resources that are available when they need them, then I'm not doing my job. Yeah. And, you know, and sometimes they just don't know it's there. And, um, but the army is coming along hat on the military side has come a long way with those types of resources. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, I can't, I can't give enough credit to Tara, um, you know, and her parents and my parents and, always stepping up when I have to be gone. It, it really yeah. doesn't mean the word. It makes me, it allows me to do my job uh, with a little bit less stress. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I can't, I can't do what I do without Tara. Uh, and and yeah. that's just a um, huge part of it. You know, a lot of people will come up to me and they'll say, thank you for your service. And, 
you know, it really, it's just my service is just a small part. Uh, you know, there's so much other stuff that happens behind the curtain here at home. Um, and, and that's Tara. I call her kitchen six. Uh, yeah. She runs it and uh, she does a great job. And uh, so I, I really cannot thank her enough for that. Well, you know, the only other thing I'm thinking about is, uh, you know, I, I went to watch that Top Gun movie and uh, I'm just surprised they haven't you recruited for you for some kind of movie with Apache helicopters, man, because, you know, you could definitely run the show and you're still looking young. You got that Tom Cruise hair deal and, you know, going on. And so uh, we got to we got to get somebody to get that Apache movie going. But uh yeah, they, they tried that once with Firebirds and Nicolas Cage. It didn't turn out too well. <laughs> out too well. I don't know if they're going to take another shot at that. Right. Well, certainly appreciate what you do for this country. And I'm so proud just to have had the opportunity to coach you. And uh, so proud of you and what you're doing and um, and keeping your faith and, uh, and keeping your family together through all this. Uh, Wow. I mean, you, you have accomplished some great things. And so uh, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up and uh, I will see you in the morning. And so uh, uh, this is coach Connors uh, wrapping it up today for absolute empowerment and armoredlife.org. Uh, uh, God bless you. And we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to Absolute Empowerment with Coach Jeff Connors on The Sports Objective. Join us every Monday night for a new edition of the show. Listen to the show pretty much everywhere podcasts are found. Be sure to follow us on social media at The Sports OBJ on Twitter and TikTok, at The Sports Objective on Instagram. Like and follow our Facebook page and subscribe to our YouTube channel. As always, we appreciate you listening to the show. And go Pirates!